0: The Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 11. It's on page 1503 of the church Bibles and on a very familiar page in your own Bible. Then Jesus came from Galilee to jo- the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him.
1: All of us, from time to time, find ourselves asking the question, will everything be okay? That's a basic question that kids ask, and it's a basic, well, the desire to say yes is a basic need for parents to be able to reassure our children things will be Okay. Um, two weeks ago, I walked my daughter down the aisle. I had this sense that I wanted to say to her and to me, things will be okay. Of course, the problem is that we grow up and from kids and we realise that things are not all right, they're not all okay. Many things in this world are very far from all right. Many, many things are sadly and badly wrong Ever since that first sin in the garden, our world has not been right, and we are caught up in it. And of course, I'm not just talking about fire and floods, there's the evil that human beings do to one another. You know, you think life is peachy and rosy and good, and then you open your screens, your news feeds, and someone lobs a a grenade into the cafe of your perfect existence and blows that mindset apart or maybe even into your own life it happens where something terrible goes wrong. I grew up in a street where I thought nothing ever went wrong you've heard this story until everything did. Murder, kidnapping, suicide and child abuse all within a six-house radius of where I used to ride my scooter. Will everything be alright? It's not guaranteed, is it? Will everything be all right with God? Yes, we think God's job is to pardon people. He's going to pardon everyone, won't he? And yet last week we heard from John the Baptist that there was a wrath that was coming. The wrath of God which people need to flee by turning to him. Things are not all right with God, naturally, naturally nor are they all right with our world. There is something terribly wrong. It should be no surprise that the Bible speaks of a phantom menace in our world. Satan, the enemy of God and the enemy of all people, all those whom God has made. He desires our destruction. His strategy is to tempt us to sin... And then to deceive us, to think that sin is okay. And he does that by having us question God's goodness and question whether God will actually make good on his promise to judge those who walk away and sin. And then when we do sin, he accuses us before God. Now, of course, we're the sinners. It's not he who's, you know, sinned for us. We sin. But it's this phantom menace behind us, tempting us and enticing us. And he leads us into conflict with each other and with God. And it's into this messy world that Jesus comes. And he came 2,000 years ago and Jesus preached the same life-changing message which John the Baptist had spoken just beforehand. It's the same words. He said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And here is the good news. That life, the world is not just going to keep on dissolving and disintegrating and destroying one another. No, the rule of God is going to break into our world. And it has God's declaration that ultimately things will be okay for those who repent. Because God will set up his rule in a new and different way. And we think, really, really, is this the answer? Because there's still evil in the world. Christians are not immune to it. The wrath of God is still something that awaits. We still have an accusing enemy. How do we know that what Jesus said is the answer for that which is wrong? How do we know that Jesus really has come to free us from evil and from the wrath of God, and from Satan? How do we know that in the end, things will be all right for those who repent and believe? Well, the answer is what happens between John's announcement and Jesus' announcement, and that is the passage we've just read. Two events, Jesus' baptism, where God says, look, this is my son and Jesus' temptation, a once-only event where Jesus openly goes head-to-head with Satan in a live showdown contest. Together, those two events taken together combine and assure us that in the end, things will be okay. Now, don't know if you've thought about um, the baptism. Most of us have thought about the temptation. If I was to ask you, what's the application of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation for us. If I was to ask you to turn to the person beside you and say, please apply Jesus' baptism to us, please apply Jesus' temptation to us, most of you, if you thought for a moment, would be able to apply the temptation. And most of you, I'm guessing, would probably say something like this, that Jesus sets us an example to show us how to use Scripture to battle Satan at the moment of temptation, right? Okay. How do you apply Jesus' baptism? Tricky. Okay, it's a little bit trickier, isn't it? Okay. Uh, well, if we're scratching our heads, we're in good company. John himself couldn't work out why on earth Jesus would come and be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. Why don't you come to me? And in our heads, maybe it doesn't make sense that we should consider these two events together, and yet they are together. How do we know that? Because we're told. The baptism immediately leads to the temptation because it's the same Spirit of God who was seen to come down on Jesus at the baptism that then led Jesus out straight away after he was baptized to be tempted. They go together. What's the connection? Mm, We have to wait and see. But first of all, God wants us to see something else. The NIV translation leaves it out, but in verse 16 and again in verse 17, Matthew says behold or look open your eyes he says so as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water and behold it says at that moment the heavens were open we're meant to look and see this and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and lighting on him and we're meant to see it too and behold look see a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased God wants us to see two things Which come to us from heaven here. The Spirit who descends on Jesus, and then see, although you hear, don't you? God's voice, which shouts out His delight about His Son. God's audible voice from heaven. That's very rare, isn't it? Can you think of any other moment in the New Testament where the voice of God is heard audibly from heaven? Can you think? When does that happen? at the transfiguration, right, when Jesus is on the mountain. This is my son. Listen to him. It's an announcement again about Jesus. And then, of course, in John's Gospel, a turning point in John's Gospel, um, some Greeks come up, question Philip and Andrew. They want to come and see Jesus. Jesus understands that this is the moment. He says, now is the moment for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's speaking about going to his death. And then the Lord pops open the gates to heaven and yells out, When Jesus says, Father, glorify my name, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Three times the father speaks about his son and in every moment, or speaks out loud, in every moment it's about his son at a key moment in his life. This is my son. I remember when I first became a dad and uh, not to a boy, of course, but a girl, but Poor Narelle had just given birth. She won't remember this, but I ran out into the waiting room to our family who were there. It's a girl! I have a girl! This is my son, the Lord says. He's full of pride. He's just bursting out. He wants us to see. This is my boy. This is my son. Isn't he wonderful? What are we meant to see in this announcement? this is my son. What does God want us to see in what we see? Well, he wants us to see, well question, does he want us to see that this is the moment that Jesus becomes a Christian, you know, when he's baptized and the Spirit comes on him? How can Jesus become a Christian? He already had the Spirit, right, in the womb, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 1. Some people say, oh, was this the moment when a sinless man becomes divine? No, we believe in the incarnation. God with us, we're told in Matthew chapter 1. He's always God. So what are we meant to see here in this announcement? This is my son. Four things. First of all, that Jesus is the true ruler of the nations of the world. You have to know your Old Testament. In Psalm 2, God gives his perspective on world conflict. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is this world in conflict? Answer in the Psalm, because the kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Is God threatened by this? No. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them and then he rebukes them in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill my son. There is in the end only one ruler of the world, the one who has been anointed as king by God. Who does God say is this king? In Psalms 2, it's the one whom God says, you are my son. Okay? The father's announcement at Jesus' baptism is more than just sentimental. He's declaring Jesus is the anointed king of the world, the king of all the nations. Second, Jesus is the spirit-anointed servant. Again, you've got to know your Old Testament. 700 years before Jesus' coming, in Isaiah 42, God centers Israel's hopes on the coming of a special servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, says God, my chosen one in whom I delight. This is my son. (laughs) I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice and righteousness on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. When the Spirit descended on Jesus, he didn't become a Christian. He was identified as this special servant of God the one who had the Spirit. He's the hope for the nations, including islands like Australia. And thirdly, if we were to go on in the book of Isaiah, we'd see that that same uh, Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord is the one who had to suffer. He must suffer at God's hand. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Innocently, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. More than that, his suffering would be because of our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And strangely, by suffering in our place, we have peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, do you see how this Jesus being god's son is at the one time the king of the world but he is anointed by the spirit he's also the servant the servant who must suffer and all that is announced in that declaration at the moment the spirit comes on him how is it possible that the one who suffers for us can bring us peace because fourthly he is our representative and that's the meaning of jesus baptism to us when jesus comes to be baptized by john what's happening he has to do it, not for his own sake, but to identify himself with we who are sinners. Remember that when people were baptised, they would confess their sins. In being baptised, Jesus is standing with us. He's identifying himself with we who are sinners. Matthew makes the point another way. In his baptism, God says, this is my son. But back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, God also refers to the nation of Israel, As his son, out of Egypt I called my son. And we know Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus also came out of Egypt because he was sent there as an infant um, for protection from Herod. Both come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I call my son. In fact, the first time Israel was called God's son was just before their baptism when they passed through the Red Sea... Exodus chapter 4 verse 21, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Isn't it interesting? Jesus, God's son, comes to be baptized by John to identify himself with God's people who were also baptized as God's son. Well, it's important for us that this should happen. That's why when John tries to stop him, Jesus says, let it be so now. This is really important. By identifying with us, he is able to suffer for us, to represent us. He is able to bring us peace. And that's why in the end things will be all right. Because the king of the world is the son of God and he will bring in God's reign of peace by serving us and suffering for us. What a wonderful king. What a capable king. What a servant king. Here is Jesus who's identified with us. And God says, This is my son, whom I love, in whom I delight. The father has no doubt at all, no doubt at all that Jesus is the one who is going to put things right. He slaps his hand on his son's shoulder after the baptism, as it were, and then he sends him out for the showdown with Satan in the desert. To disarm Satan, because that's what needs to happen. And now, point three on your outline this is the big moment. Now, we get to the temptation. Now, the scene is set with Jesus having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Obviously, he is hungry. We're told that. He is vulnerable. He is weak. Um, You'll know moments when you're desperately hungry because you haven't eaten. And you just can't function properly, can you? you? You can't make proper decisions. It's like that. I just need to eat something. Well, he's like that. But hearing that phrase, 40 days and 40 nights, we ought to twig that this is going to be a big moment in God's plan for the world. Because what else happens for 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible? Do you remember? The flood, right? We remember how it rained 40 days and 40 nights in the time of Noah. God judged the world but saved Noah, the one who trusted in God's word. Moses stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights at Sinai, didn't he? And he pleaded with God not to wipe out the people in judgment because they were committing apostasy. Through his intervention on that mountain, Israel was saved. And then five centuries later, Elijah had another great showdown with the prophets on Mount Carmel, which turned Israel back to God. And just then, just after that, just like Moses, he also stayed on Mount Sinai 40 days and 40 nights and he was strengthened by the food of angels. There are three moments in world history where God worked through one man of God to change the fate of millions Jesus' showdown with Satan is an event in that league. It's, in fact, the biggest moment yet. It's the moment all the other ones have been pointing to. This is the moment we need him to win. Because here, going into the desert, is someone who shares our identity. Our spiritual forefathers, the nation of Israel, whom God saved from slavery in Egypt, they were tested in the desert and they failed. Here is Jesus, identified with them, who was also tested in the desert. It's like he stands for them. It's like a replay. They wandered for 40 years, tested and tempted in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is being tested and tempted in the desert for 40 days. It's an obvious connection. This showdown is not just about Jesus and Satan. It's about Jesus and what he does for us in his battle with Satan. Can Jesus win where we have failed? We say, of course he'll win. He's the Son of God. But being the Son of God doesn't stop him being fully human and having human weakness. To represent us fully, he had to be fully human. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was genuinely hungry, genuinely weak, generally vulnerable to temptation. It was a real conflict. So, is this just a Star Wars movie where kind of the Jedi Knight fights with Darth Maul and we don't know who's going to win? No, because behind the scenes, God is in charge. God the Father praises his son. God the Spirit sends him out into the desert to be tempted. This wasn't a, uh, an event orchestrated by Satan, this was set up by the Lord. It's a real conflict, but there's comfort because God's in charge. The showdown comes in three rounds. In each round, the temperature is raised and conflict escalates. Things, first of all, become increasingly personal. First of all, it's the tempter that tempts Jesus. Then it's the devil. Finally, it's away from me, Satan. It gets personal. Things become more intense as the temptations go on. The first temptation occurs in the desert. It targets Jesus' hunger. The second occurs at the temple, the place where God's shown himself. It targets Jesus' trust in God. The third comes atop a very high mountain and targets Jesus' rightful claim to the kingdom of the world and all their splendor. It increases in intensity. And as Jesus stands firm resisting each temptation by holding fast to the word of God the temptations become more and more crass the first sounds so innocent doesn't it tell these stones to become bread what's wrong with that the third becomes crass i'll give you all these kingdoms if you worship me the intensity rises the crassness rises the devil becomes more and more desperate. Jesus becomes more and more victorious. I don't know if you notice, but Jesus moves from being passive to being very active. He's passive initially. He's led everywhere, led to the desert by the Spirit, led to the holy city by the devil, led to the high mountain. He's just kind of following. But at the end, Jesus is the one in charge. And instead of being led, he tells Satan where to go. Away from me, Satan. And Satan obeys. What a champion. By the end, God wants us to see his endorsement of Jesus. The second temptation tested Jesus to doubt whether God would send his angels to care for him. Well, after the temptations, God sends his angels to care for Jesus. It's God's way of endorsing Jesus to us and giving him the thumbs up in Jesus' victory over Satan. Baptism, temptation. So what? Why does this matter to us? Because these events, without these events, the cross wouldn't work. These events set up Jesus' victory at the cross In Colossians chapter 2, we are told that God disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, what power does Satan have over us? Well, he tempts us, he deceives us, but the main power is the power to accuse. Like in the book of Job, where Satan stands before God and accuses um, Job of his sins and therefore being deserving of wrath. But through dying on the cross, Jesus takes that power away. He disarms Satan. How does he do that? Because he dies for us. He suffers the wrath for us. He pays our punishment. What, What is Satan going to say now? They still deserve wrath. No, they don't. I took it. They're a sinner. No, 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 no. no. They're covered by me. My life for theirs. What's he going to say? He's got no power. Away from me, Satan. Get out of here. You have no place to accuse those for whom I died. They are with me. My death covers their sins. The wrath has been turned aside. There's no more to be said. The punishment has been paid in full once and for all. Your power has been stripped. Get out. Okay now how can that happen? It requires something. It requires Jesus to be able to identify with sinners doesn't it? He does it at his baptism and then it requires him to be that sinless substitute which means he had to be tempted just as we have been and where we have failed he needed to have succeeded so that he could be legitimately the one who stands for us as our representative, identified with us, but having gone through what we've gone through, but where we failed, he didn't. Baptism, temptation. You see why Satan tried so hard to tempt Jesus. All his temptations were aimed at turning Jesus a road from that way of suffering, because Satan had an inkling of where uh, this temptation would lead. You're the Son of God. But you're famished, so don't suffer. Tell these stones to become bread. He didn't want him to suffer. You're the son of God, you don't need to suffer. Test God, he'll rescue you. You're the son of God, you don't have to suffer. First of all, before you receive the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world do belong to Jesus, but he had to suffer and die and then be raised to to life again as the ruler of the world for him to get them. It wasn't, shouldn't he get them or not, he should But it was the path that he was on. Should he just get them straight away without going through the cross? Or should he have to go via the cross? Satan wanted so much for Jesus not to suffer for us. In fact, beyond this temptation, we hear of two more moments. In chapter 16, when Jesus spoke of his coming suffering, Peter objected Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What does Jesus smell? The whiff of sulfur. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Then on the cross, on the cross, the temptation happens again. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. It's the same, isn't it? Well, he didn't. But the temptation was always the same. Don't suffer as the Son of God. He tr- Satan tried his hardest to tempt Jesus to go the easy route because... It was through his suffering, you see, that sa- through Jesus' suffering, that Satan knew he would be disarmed. Praise God Jesus didn't give in. Praise God Jesus triumphed over Satan. Praise God Jesus took the punishment. Praise God because, you see what this is saying, in the end things will be all right. What does he deal with? Well, he deals with evil, he deals with wrath, he deals with Satan. Things will be all right. There is nothing that can take away what Jesus has won for us. What should our response be? Reading Jesus' baptism and temptation to rejoice in Jesus' victory over Satan. Evil, wrath, Satan, all overcome because of what happened there. Rejoice with the Father. Exalt with the Father with Jesus. Uh, In the one he says, this is my son. And he says it with delight. And we should say it with delight too. He is God's son. What a wonderful saviour. Amen? Amen.